All right, great. Uh, if you've got a Bible, if you've got a Bible this morning, I'm going to speak from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, it's been an interesting week across the church generally with our prayer meetings. Uh, and particularly knowing that this one is our, our fifth, fifth anniversary, I've been excited about being able to preach and just share some of the things that God's put on my heart for us. But it's also been challenging because I feel like Jesus has been speaking to us at different points during the week and keeps changing what I wanted to say, which is really inconvenient. Um, but we had um, four years ago, I went to a conference before I was involved with the church here at all. I went to a conference and the guy was preaching from the story of Gideon. And I felt God speak to me very clearly at that moment about moving to Seaford and taking on the adventure of life in Seaford. That was four years ago. And since then, I've not heard anything about Gideon. He doesn't crop up in my life regularly. No one's prayed a Gideon kind of prayer or brought a Gideon prophetic word. But uh, at the prayer meeting on Tuesday night, after I shared with the church in Eastbourne about how we're praying for a building and uh, hoping that God opens the door for a particular building in town, um, someone prayed for me and brought a prophetic word. And it was from the story of Gideon. First time in four years. And they said that um, the story of Gideon is essentially about how God takes an army uh, and whittles them down to just a few hundred people. And then with just that few hundred people, that army goes and defeats the enemy of the day, the Midianites. And the prophetic word was, for us in Seafood, God is not looking for and after a huge people to do great exploits. He's after whoever he's got. And actually, God likes to do things through the small and the unknown. And God is actually, in the story of Gideon, whittled it down to a few hundred so that the boasting wouldn't be in the might of the army, but the boasting would be in the might of God who makes impossible things happen uh, with improbable circumstances. That's the kind of God. And hearing that prophetic word really encouraged me, and I hope encourages you as well, that God is speaking and wanting to speak to us for the future. Another prophetic thing or theme that came up during the week as well was that we felt the Lord speak to us as elders and say, stop planning a vision for the next 10 years and start thinking about the next 100 years, which is crazy. Um, But we felt the Lord say, actually, quite often these days, people build buildings that are only supposed to last 20 or 30 years, and they only really have a 20 or 30 year lifespan. And so often in church life, we can have that same approach. We'll just think, what can we do in the next year or <laughs> next week, let alone next five years, ten years? I actually feel like the Lord's saying, no, I want you to be a player at the table or to think of yourselves as a church, as a player at the table for the next hundred years. And for us in Seaford, we believe at this stage that involves us pursuing a permanent footprint in the town. But we'll see how that goes as God leads us. Because it's not just that we want to exist in a hundred years. Our vision isn't to just keep going from one week to the next. Our vision is much bigger than that. We want to build a church like the church you read about in the New Testament. A church of people who love Jesus, who are filled with the Holy Spirit, and are actively helping to reach people with the gospel in all kinds of different circumstances, in all kinds of different ways. Which has always been a, a tall order. It's always been difficult. The odds have always been stacked against the church in that sense. Jesus took a group of 12 guys and said, go and change the world. And actually the history of the West is largely the history of Christianity. But I want to have a look at the the state of things today. Before we get into 1 Corinthians, I want to look for a few moments at the state of things today from various, I don't know, books uh, that I've read or newspaper articles or just observations, many of which will be familiar to us, I know. But let's just um, have a look. So uh, globally, uh, Christianity is uh, well over 40% of the the planet identify themselves as Christians. That's more than two billion people. And actually Christianity is growing in every part of the world 
apart from Western Europe and Northern America, North America, where it is in decline. Um, I've got some graphs here because I just can't get enough. Um, in the 1940s in the States, 5% of people in the population said that when asked what their religion was, they said they, were, they didn't have a religion. They were religiously unaffiliated. 50 years later, in the 1990s, that had risen by just 2.5% to 7.5% of the population. Okay, in 50 years, a 2.5% jump. That's not very much. Not very much at all. Between 1990 and 2008, just 18 years, that 7.5% shot up to 15% of the country in just 18 years. And in 2012, the best statistics about American religious life is that it's now around 20%. America's a lot more, has traditionally been a lot more religious than the UK, a lot more Christian, certainly. And yet they're seeing a rise of people who identify themselves as being of no religious persuasion. But that's America. Things are very different in the UK, aren't they? We're always different. Well, actually, it's a little bit worse. For us, in, um, in 1963, the survey was done, and I think that's like 3.6% of the population said that they were religiously unaffiliated. In 2001, so 38 years after that, it risen to whatever that is, about 10%, I think. Um, and then between 2001 and 2011, um, one survey put the figure at 25%, which is 6 million, no, it's not 6 million people, it's 60 million people in our country, so 25% of the population said that. Um, and also in 2011, the British Election Survey conducted a poll, and they got the figure at 45%, which is a massive deviation between those two. Uh, but really, they asked a different question. Uh, because the people who identify themselves as none or religiously unaffiliated are not necessarily atheists. They have a belief, they're spiritual, but they're not religious. And that seems to be how people identify themselves. In 2015, uh, I heard a statistic back in February um, that said the people under the age of 25, 66% of themselves identify themselves as re being religiously unaffiliated. The, the church scene has changed a lot over the past decade or two. The way the, the church is to engage with people who aren't of faith, aren't Christians, needs to change potentially. But if nothing else, the observation that you might make in your workplace is accurate. People are not religious, not Christian, not necessarily interested. Now, the, the, the scene has changed here because society has changed. In France, for example, which is the most atheist country in the world, 14% of their population identify themselves as atheists. In France, the government have designated 193 different dangerous religious cults, and among those groups are evangelical Christians and Baptists. Baptists, good old Baptists, are a dangerous cult in France. There we go. Um, and what's changed over the past few decades, ever since World War II and the advent of the internet and the changing shape of the world, is that whereas... Say in any given society, there's a portion of people who are always going to be atheists, and there might be a portion of people who are the committed core Christians. And there's a, normally, say there's about an 80% of the population who are open and they're willing to think and consider and change their minds and things. Well, in the past, the prevailing winds of culture and the prevailing influences of culture have been largely positive towards Christianity. So it was socially acceptable and encouraged to send your kids to Sunday school, to get married in a church, to get your kids christened, to go to the church for funerals. Church was a, a part of life and the prevailing wind of culture, the attitudes in the popular press, nudged people that direction. So when Billy Graham conducted his crusades, his evangelistic outreaches, it was in that kind of period of time where he could stand up and say, the Bible says, and the audience would go, okay, the Bible, I trust the Bible. The Bible's a reliable source of information. They would listen to that. 
These days, if you stand up and say, the Bible says, people say, why should I trust the Bible any more than I should trust the Daily Mail? Why? There's less of a confidence in the people. See, now, whereas before the prevailing winds of culture were towards the church and the Christian percentage of, the con- of a society was benefited by that and grew in large part because there was a sympathy in culture at large towards Christianity, now things have changed. Now the prevailing winds of culture and influence is towards the other way. We're suspicious of organized religion. Meetings like this and the one in Eastbourne freak people out. People used to go to the King Centre and say, wow, look at this. There must be some truth. The King Centre is where the church in Eastbourne meets. It's a large building with six or 700 people. In the past, people would have walked into that building and gone, wow, look at this. There must be some credibility to this faith. There must be something to it. Now, people would walk in and go, I wonder what the scam is. I wonder what they've done to fleece these people to get the money to make this happen. There's a suspicion towards faith, by and large, in the culture. And the prevailing winds of thought are anti-religious establishment and traditional religion and push people more and more this way. Hence, the rising tide and change of Christianity. In the Spectator magazine um, last June, their feature article was entitled The Last Christian. And they, making ob- their religious correspondents, making observations based on those graphs, they put projections out there and they said, if things carry on going the way they're going, then in 2033... In 2033, the last Anglican will leave the church. The rate that the Anglican church is declining. It said in 2033, that will be the end of Anglicanism. Now, we don't believe that. And for, for, they're not saying it's a prediction. They're just saying a projection based on what's happened in the last couple of decades. But the fact that a magazine like that would write something like that and they would talk about and comment on the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, the rise of the religiously unaffiliated, shows that this is more than just an idea you might pick up in a, in a pop paperback novel or book somewhere. Actually, this is observed by and large and generally people are aware of this kind of thing going on. You add into that the fact that our society is more consumeristic than ever before, that we live in a throwaway culture, just chuck it out. It becomes harder and harder for us as church to build the kind of church that we see in the Bible and we want to see replicated, a New Testament-style church. Okay, that's the bad news. Let's get into the Bible now because we're not here to just, I don't know, read the latest magazine and tell you what it says. We're here to see what God says in his word. So guys at the back, if you could follow along with the slide. Here we go. 1 Corinthians 1. 26 to 31. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Consider your calling. That's what Paul says to the church in Corinth, consider where you've come from and who you are. Corinth was a notorious city in the ancient world. It was very licentious. It was a city full of all kinds of different, a smorgasbord of different pagan faiths. It was one of the last places in the known world that you'd have ever expected the gospel to take root. But a church got established there. 
such that Paul could write elsewhere and say that this church is the, the jewel in the crown of my apostleship. I'm convinced that God's called me because look, a church in Corinth, who would have thought? And he says to this church, consider where you've come from and what's made you you. The odds have always been against the church. You don't need graphs and cultural analysis to tell you that. It's always been that way. The odds were against us kings 27 years ago when a group of 17 people moved from Hastings to Eastbourne to start a church. To start a church after the pattern of the New Testament that loves one another, loves Jesus, loves the lost, full of the Holy Spirit. A church where anyone can be welcome. 27 years ago, the odds were against them. Well, that church, against all odds, grew and soon was able to meet not just in a home but in a school. Against all the odds, that group soon grew to around the size of 100 adults, a little bit bigger than we are now. And against all the odds, that group of 100 adults was able to buy the King Centre for around £600,000. Against all the odds, they got into the building. They were able to run creative arts and Christmas um, shows and productions that reached thousands of people and have done over the past few years. That church was able to put on a kids club that bust in hundreds of children across the town. Uh, that was when I joined the story 10 years ago, uh, moved to King's to be involved with the kids club. And we used to bus in kids from around the town. And at its height, kids club was a, a, a gospel experience on Saturday mornings for up to 160 kids every Saturday morning coming to hear about Jesus. It's 10 years ago. Against all the odds, that church continued to grow. In 2008, we became two meetings in one location, 9 and 11 over in Hamden Park. And then five years ago, or six years ago, as elders, we sat down, or leaders, we sat down and prayed and dreamt, maybe we could do this in Seaford. Maybe we could plant a church, start a site in Seaford. Against all the odds, we did five years ago. Five years on, we're still going. Two years ago, we started the church in Eastbourne Town Centre, King's Centro. That's our story. We're a people who've always existed against all the odds. And if you've recently joined us, you're part of the church. That's your story. That's who we are. It's where we've come from as a church. That's why we're here in the first place, because God is a God who works against all the odds. But when Paul says, consider your calling, he's not just saying to the congregation as a whole church, consider your calling. Consider how unlikely it was and is that you ever existed He's also going to go further, and he says this, consider your calling. Not many of you are wise. So he's talking individually now. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble birth. Individually, what were you, he says. And yet, look at what God's done through you. Now, I'm not, I can't talk about you, but I look at myself and think, I'm not impressive. I, I'm not the, I don't think I could change the world. I don't think I have much in me that has the power to do that. I'm disorganized, scatty, and got plenty and plenty of flaws and weaknesses. As we look around the room, you think, God has chosen people like me and us to display his glory. See, Paul, say, Paul goes further and says, God has chosen the things that are not in order to bring to bear the things that are. The things that are not. The things that the, the world looks at and goes, that's nothing. Like the, the plants that are on their last legs and about to die, God chooses those plants and waters them and nurtures them and loves them. God is a God who doesn't break a bruised reed, but instead repairs it. God is a God who doesn't snuff out a smoldering wick, but breathes it back into life. God chooses the things that are not 
to shame or to put to shame the things that are. That's what God does. If we look around this room, you might think, oh, there's a lot of empty chairs and we're not as big as we'd like to be. We'd love to reach more people in seafood. How could God ever do that? God loves using things that are not, using people who don't think the world of themselves or don't think that they are world changers. God uses people like that. He specializes in it. He always has done. That's what Paul is saying here. And understanding that is really important. Being okay with the fact <laughs> that you might find yourself in that list. Hey, what are you talking about? I'm wise. I'm powerful. I'm of noble birth. Do you know that in my family tree, generations back, um, we have royalty. That's what everyone says, don't they? We have royalty. If you go far enough back, there's royalty in my blood. That, don't cut me. That's royal blood. Do you not know who I am? It can be hard for us to be okay with finding our name in that list. Really? But it's important that we do. Because when you do, when we do, we can... We realize that God has called us to be a church for everyone. A church where everyone is welcome. We have it on our flyers. Kings, church for everyone. It's not just a nice little thing to put on a flyer. It's true. It's in us. It's what we want. All are welcome. So you've been to university and you've got a degree. You're welcome here. You never finished school. You dropped out. There's a place for you here too. You work in the city, you have six-figure salary, you're welcome here. You're out of work, you're unemployed, you're struggling to make ends meet. There is a place for you here. You're a first-generation migrant, you are welcome here. You're a refugee, you're welcome here. You're a 50th-generation migrant, you're welcome here. We're all foreigners here. You come from a functional family, very healthy and happy. You love one another. This is a great home for you, you're welcome here. You've never known a family, perhaps. You've been in and out of care your whole life. There's a place for you here as well. You got your life together? You don't have much baggage or you're not aware of your baggage? You're welcome here. Or you're aware that you've got lots of baggage, lots of questions you want to work through. There's a place for you here as well. You're a Christian, been a Christian for 20 years. You are welcome here. There's a place for you. You're not yet a Christian. You don't want to be here. You got here because a friend dragged you along. You're welcome here. You're seeking God. You're not seeking God. You're a Muslim. You're a Buddhist. Whatever you are, you're welcome here. This is a church for everyone. That's what we're wanting to build. That's wanting to, what we're wanting to believe that God is able to do. We want to be kings, church for everyone. So how do we do it? How do we build a church for everyone? A church that's aware of its calling, who we are, where we come from. A church that's aware of our makeup, who we are. How do we do that? Well, Francis Schaeffer, the Christian philosopher, he says this, Christianity demands that we have enough compassion to learn the questions of our generation. Answering questions is very hard work, so we need to begin by listening, listening to one another, listening to the town that we live in, looking to do what we can to meet those needs. We've, we might be familiar with IQ and EQ, emotional intelligence, but there's also a CQ, a cultural quotient, how, we're, how much we're aware of the day and age that we live in. We can't just act like we live in the 1950s and just hope that if we do the same thing that Billy Graham did and stand up and say, the Bible says, people will believe us because it's a different day, it's a different age. And every generation owes it to the culture that it lives in to ask those questions. How can I best connect with you, religiously unaffiliated culture that we live in? What can we do to build a church that even the unchurched feel at home and feel welcome in it? Now, 
I want to play a couple of clips for us, a couple of videos, and I'm, in da- I'm, I'm aware that one of these clips is in danger of making me look a little bit like a teenage girl listening to pop lyrics <laughs> and then getting my meaning for life from them. But I think looking at popular culture to hear uh, how, I suppose, the younger generation or the current generations, uh, particularly in our pop music, are expressing their ideas and expressing themselves is a helpful thing to do. Uh, so the band Bastille, a uh, popular band, but the first single that they released, the chorus went like this. I won't sing it. It said that there's a hole in my soul and I can't fill it. There's a hole in my soul. Can you fill it? There's a, a spiritual longing in them. Uh, Mumford and Sons is another band who are very popular at the moment. The single we're going to watch a clip from uh, got to number 10 or 20 in our charts, got to number one in the States. And this song epitomizes and embodies the spirit of the nuns, the religiously unaffiliated, people who are far from God. Jason Mumford grew up in the home of um, the well-known Christian leader in the Vineyard Movement and is in a place of questioning and wrestling with his faith. Uh, the song asks the question, or, or states, the, um, states the position that he's in when he says, I don't even know what I believe. I don't even know if I want to believe, is what he says. And then there's this moment in, in just after the chorus where it breaks, and I think it sums up for us beautifully exactly how so many of the people that we live and work alongside feel. So let's watch this clip together. The sentiment that's being echoed, say something, say something. There's a cry and a longing within our generation for God. The questions that exist in their heart that they're not going to express by coming on an alpha course necessarily or turning up at a church door is still there. But there's a film that was released last year that has a, a scene in it that I found particularly poignant in this respect. The film's Gravity. I don't know if you've seen it. Released last year with Sandra Bullock and George Clooney. And there's a scene um, in this film where Sandra Bullock is about to die or believes she's about to die. And she expresses her kind of thoughts about death and spirituality uh, in this way. So let's watch this and hopefully the, the clip will work better for us. It's just that line that she says there, I would pray for myself, but nobody ever taught me how. I don't know how to pray. No one ever taught me how. If two-thirds of the people under the age of 30 in this country are growing up in homes that are religiously unaffiliated, 66% of the people, two-thirds of the people you walk past in the streets don't know Genesis from Revelation, don't know the Gospel of Matthew from the Gospel of Thomas. have no idea. Biblically illiterate, spiritually illiterate. Those are the people that we work alongside, we live alongside, we walk past in the street. They pray for themselves, but they, no one ever showed them how. You see, religiously unaffiliated people are not atheists necessarily. They're just convinced that the church and Christians haven't got much to offer. Uh, many of them in our society, many people in our society, it's not uncommon to live your whole life and never, re- never meet another Christian. Certainly never become friends with someone who's embodying and living a meaningful Christian life in front of them. Those are the people, among others, those are the people that God has called us as a church to play our part in reaching in this town. You might be one of them sitting here, might be one of your first times in church. And we want to show you the love of God. We want to show you that the gospel of Jesus is relevant, applicable to your life. There's the people in society might not be searching for faith, but they're hungry. There's a hunger in, in people's guts and souls and bellies for God. 
several months ago, I had quite a life-defining moment, as many of you know, where I, I, get, I got to lead the service for my sister's wedding and preach the gospel and uh, just offer a little prayer. And I didn't do anything very different, but I was speaking to a room of over 100 people, all of whom were religiously unaffiliated, and yet all of whom also afterwards made a point of coming to see me and expressing themselves and saying, I would go to church if it was like that. I didn't know Christianity offered something like that. That was so meaningful. Tell me more. I didn't do anything different. I just showed them. Uh, Showed them the Christian message in a way that they could understand it in terms that they got. It was life-defining for me because I realized that's what I want to do with my life. I want to reach people who've never heard about Jesus and they don't live in, the, they do live uh, in Kazakhstan and far flung countries like that, but they also live around us. They're my neighbors who have rejected not Jesus, they've rejected a cultural form of Christianity that they thought was repugnant and repulsive to them. God has called us to reach them. And that's what I am going to spend my life trying to do. That's what we as a church exist for. So our baby dedication wasn't just a chance to thank God for babies. It was a chance to meet some of those people who are hungry for God, but they're not searching. They wouldn't ever come to church off their own back, but they came because we invited them and we got to tell them about a God who loves them. We need to listen to the people that we live around. We need to soak ourselves in Scripture. I love how Paul puts it. God is... He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. He is our hope. He is our, Paul goes on to say, our reason to boast. Let the one who boasts, boast in him. If building a church of of previously unchurched people in a society like this was down to us, forget it. All the best will in the world, we can't do it. But he is the one that we can hope in. Jesus summed his mission up when he said, I've come to seek and to save the lost, right? And he found those lost and he said to them, now you are my witnesses in the world. Live as disciples of mine. Do that. But Jesus is out seeking and saving the lost. That's my experience. I became a Christian because Jesus found me. I was born as a God hater. Jesus was my favorite swear word until the age of 16, until I met him. And he broke my heart, forgave me for my sin, And despite a long few years of wrestling with Jesus, decided eventually, no, I'm going to get baptized and follow you. But Jesus is out seeking and saving the lost. You know, in 1710, uh, the liberal churchman, Thomas Walston, he predicted with real confidence that religion would vanish by the 19th century or by the 1900s. The French philosopher Voltaire expressed similar confidence. In fact, he said it would be sooner. There have always been secularists philosophers who've been predicting with certainty religion is dying out Christianity will be wiped away don't worry there'll always be every generation has its form of Richard Dawkins saying it's going to be over but Christianity is growing around the world the world is more religious and spiritual than it's ever been you just need to watch the news to realize that who would have thought 20 years ago when the iron 30 years ago when the iron curtain was firmly in place and Russia for all intents and purposes was a communist atheist country who would have thought that Russia's atheism was now is now at 
4%. There's a thriving church of Christians in Russia, and what was previously the most atheist country in the world is now, there's only 4% of the population say, yeah, I'm an atheist. Who'd have thought that 20 or 30 years ago? See, against all the odds, there are more Christians alive today than there's ever been because Jesus is seeking and saving the lost. And we'll do what we can, right? We'll do what we can to present our church community as lovingly as we can and as credibly as we can to people. We'll make sure that we engage in discussions rather than just preach sermons. We'll listen. We'll be careful of our tone. We'll be careful of everything that we can. We'll do what we can to reach the unchurched people in this town. This town? Town. We'll come early to meet visitors maybe on a Sunday morning. You know, the only people who turn up for church on time are the visitors. And it's like, oh, there are other people here. Don't worry. If you wait till quarter past, what time do you start? 10. Yeah, but if you wait till quarter past, there'll be people here, I promise. Or we'll do what we can to invite people to church. We had this challenge as elders recently where I, I asked the eldership team, I said, write down on a piece of paper how many people you've invited to church since the year began. <laughs> it was not pretty. But it challenged us. I remember about a year ago, I sat down with someone. I said, oh, we're, just, we're not reaching the, non, the non-Christians, the lost, the unchurched in this town. We're not doing it. And he said to me, how many people have you invited to church in the last year? And I said to him, but we're not reaching the people in the town outside. People aren't, people aren't coming to the school. They don't know who exists. What can we do to reach people? And he said, how many people have you invited in the last year? I said, you're missing the point. <laughs> They're not coming to us. <laughs> no, we've got to. Be out there doing what we can to invite people to Jesus, invite people to social events, to Sunday mornings. We're a people on mission. We're a people who love one another, love Jesus, are building a community that he's helping us to do, but we're a people on mission. And we're going to work hard at all of that stuff. We'll run alpha courses. We'll put on... We'll go paintballing and shoot Ed as often as we can. We'll run as many social events as we can. We'll eat curry every month if we have to so that we can meet people. We'll get to know whoever we can. We'll run pub quizzes till, you know we know everything in the Encyclopedia Britannica if we have to. And we'll make it as simple as we can. That's our next challenge. I think as elders, we've been talking a lot about just simplifying everything, and so we'll talk more about that in the coming months. But the thing that gives me confidence isn't our best will in the world. It's this. The one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. He took an army and whittled it down to a few hundred to take on an even bigger army. God chooses the things that are not in this world to put to shame the things that are. He chooses the wise to shame the, chooses the foolish to shame the wise and all of that. It's what he does. And Jesus is seeking and saving the lost. He's always been doing that. So church, on our five-year birthday, as we look ahead to the next five years, the next hundred years, that's our goal, that's our dream that we'd be a people who love Jesus and we join Jesus on his mission in seeking and saving the lost in our workplaces, in our schools and colleges, in our homes. It's not through clever arguments and persuasion, but through the power and the demonstration of the Spirit's power, which is the foolishness of the cross. The foolishness of the God become man dead on a tree for us. And as a church, we're going to respond to that Jesus, we're going to sing a song. We're going to break bread as a physical reminder of who he is and what we're about. And then we're going to finish for the morning. I'd love to pray and love to ask that God would commission us today to do that. In fact, I'd like to do something a little bit unusual. I'd like us to stand.
And I'd like us to get near one another and either put your hand on the shoulder of the person next to you like a rugby scrum or hold hands with the person next to you if that's you know, easier for you. And let's see if we can make a united chain or scrum of some kind and pray. So let's stand and, and do that together. Father, we want to boast in what you can do. We want to boast in your brilliance, in your wisdom, in your ideas. Father, you're the one who took 12 people and turned the world upside down with them. You're the one who can take our 80-odd, and we are quite odd, Father, <laughs> especially me, and you're able to do something amazing. We say today at the beginning of this academic year and as the beginning of our next year as a church that we're up for it. We'll trust you, Jesus. We'll follow you. We'll join you on your mission of seeking and saving that which is lost. Please fill us with the Holy Spirit to make it possible in the first place. Please give us all the wisdom that we need. And please help us to keep our eyes fixed firmly on the Son of God for whom Everything exists that exists and by whom everything exists that exists. It's all for you, Jesus. We love you. Amen.